being an aerospace nerd, I always enjoy browsing through news sources like space.com and reading about all of the exciting things happening in this industry as it continues to expand and we tackle new challenges that advance our place in space and benefit our lives down here on Earth. However, when it comes to keeping up with space missions, we only hear about selective and significant events within the project's life cycle. Whether it's an announcement about a recently selected mission, critical step in the integration and test phase, or common one is launch delays. <coughs> James Webb. <laughs> the things that we get to see about space missions only talk specifically about the milestone itself. What exactly is it? What makes it important? And where does the project go after this? And things that you don't see, unless you're part of a mission yourself, are all of the trials and tribulations that teams have to overcome as they go about just getting a mission off the ground and taking it from an idea to a well-thought-out design on a success-oriented path. Now, this foundation is built in the proposal phase and then is iterated on as the project progresses. And personally, I feel that the circumstances that you have to consider to define a feasible cost, schedule, and set of mission requirements is a really important topic to communicate on this podcast. And especially as someone who's still pretty early into their career, it's just something that I really want to intrinsically understand much better myself. So today's episode is going to cover some aspects of managing mission feasibility successfully and naturally, the lessons and insights that have been learned from experience, as is one of the main themes of this podcast. I certainly got a lot out of this conversation, and I hope you find it equally as enjoyable as I did. And with that, hello and welcome to another episode of The Art of Space Engineering, the podcast which explores the details behind how spacecraft payloads and missions as a whole come together and the lessons learned along the way. I'm your host, Sarah Rogers, and today's episode features a conversation with Dr. Tobin Anthony and Chris Costello, who are the leaders of Space Systems Integration, LLC, which provides consulting, technical engineering, and management services within the intelligence and defense communities. Tobin is the CEO and Chris is the president of the company. Both have gained incredible experience in systems engineering and management throughout their careers. And through the short time that I had to speak with them, they gave me an amazing insight into what managing mission concept is like in the early and later stages of development. Tobin and Chris are also a dynamic duo in every sense of the phrase. They have worked together closely for many years. so. You'll hear a few quips thrown around during the interview, which made an already fun conversation just all the more enjoyable. Before we get started, I do want to extend a huge thank you to Chrissy Rogers for connecting with me and helping this whole conversation even happen in the first place. So Chrissy, if you're listening to this, hello, and thank you for being awesome. Now, if you want a breakdown of this episode, I provided timestamps in the description, so hopefully those prove helpful for reviewing any key topics of this episode or rewinding to places where you may want to listen to again in the future. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with Tobin and Chris. Do you guys have a hard cutoff? I, I don't want to keep you too late, but sometimes these just do go like a, a little bit over an hour, just depending on how the conversation flows. I, I don't have a hard cut off tonight. Yeah, neither me, neither do I. My bedtime's at around nine thirty, so that I'll, I'll start getting really irritated if it goes that long. <laughs> I, want, I wouldn't mind watching. I wouldn't mind watching uh, Max Scherzer for play for, pitch for the Dodgers tonight a little bit, but I might have oh, it on yeah. in the background. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm looking into the distance. I'm not watching. Yeah. <laughs> if I raise my hands like this. <laughs> 
I think that's what Bill Burr does during some of his podcasts. Yeah. He'll just watch yes. the game and then he just starts yelling. <laughs> it's just great. <laughs> I freaking love Bill Burr. Okay. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, getting to the actual podcast, welcome. Welcome to the Art of Space Engineering. Thanks for having us. To, to start this off, the both of you guys leads space systems integration, and that's, you know, no small feat in and of itself. So I'm curious to just start out by getting to know a little bit more about your background and what got you more into the space side of things um, in the first place, and then how uh, you ended up where you are now. Well, sure. I'm, I'm Tobin Anthony. I'm SSI's uh, chief executive officer. I uh, started, got some really early start in space. My dad uh, worked for the Grumman Corporation, which built the lunar modules for the Apollo program. So I remember as a young kid, my dad taking us into, uh, into, the, into what they call the high bay. And we saw the lunar modules. Uh, you know, this is in the early 70s before they actually landed on the moon. And I was yeah, it was a very seminal event for me, and I, it just got me really interested in space. I grew up in the Apollo era, and, and um, you know, I remember the space shuttle launches. It was very exciting. I followed the, you know, uh, a lot of the, uh, you know, Mars landings and, and things like that. And I, I dabbled a little bit with uh, becoming an astronomy uh, astronomer and in college, but I, I kind of uh, did a little bit of computer science, but I ended up in aerospace engineering in college and, and then worked for NASA. So... Uh, you know, for me, it's been a lifelong trek. It's been a lifelong vision to get involved in space and specifically putting things in space. Yeah, my my, uh, my trek to space uh, is not necessarily as clean as Tobin's. Uh, my my father was also in aerospace, and that, that is the reason I ended up in aerospace. But um, that was despite my father being in aerospace, because uh, unlike Tobin, I, I was a little bit more of a... a a naysayer with my dad and uh there was i watched how he worked and he worked a lot because you work a lot in aerospace uh and i was like oh i'm never going to do that that's not going to be me that's not going to be me and i swore i was going to be a teacher up until about my junior year of college uh when uh i had to take education courses and realized that i was not cut out to be a teacher either so now i was kind of stuck uh and i uh, got a math degree uh, started working in statistics and my dad said, Hey, you know, I have some, some statistics working in my, my aerospace work. Do you want to come do it? Started working with space with him, ended up going back to school, getting a mechanical engineering masters and taking off from there. So it's, it's a little less, uh, a childhood dream, but, uh, nonetheless, I still love it today. Yeah, that's really cool. And I, I like both of your stories and how you, you know, got into aerospace. It, I'm, I'm sure it must have been like, I guess comparing the Apollo era to now and how it's just exploded. So I'm I'm sure Tobin for you that's probably been really cool to see over the years. Um, yeah, and I, I tell you, Sarah, it was you know in my time I've been around long enough. There have been some ebbs and flows. You know, after they shut down Apollo and really until they they launched the shuttles, uh, it was kind of a you know, there's kind of a little of a dip. And in the eighties with the shuttle and, and a lot of other things, there's, you know, kind of a, you know, it's kind of flowing. Um, so it's, it's, you know, my mother always used to tell me she didn't want me to go in aerospace because she said it's a very cyclical industry. And uh, it, it is, but um, there's, a, there's always, you know, space has captured the imagination of 
of a lot of Americans. And it's actually a place that uh, now, as we've gone on and on, it's no longer the realm of just government, but it's actually, uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of commercial involvement. And and that's something I, I find exciting. And yeah, you're right. There are some parallels to back in the Apollo era. Yeah. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, and then, you know, Chris, with your story too, it's like, I've got two friends who are um, pursuing an education or well, they got a degree in teaching and, and now they're, they're doing that now. And I, you know, like I could never do what they do. Um, I, I like helping people, but I definitely could not, um, I don't think I could be a teacher. It was never something that I, I saw myself doing. And, uh, it's, it's a hard job to like teach someone how to do something. Um, I, I do have, I do have two daughters that ended up being teachers and, and they're very good at it. But if it counts like Tobin, when I was little, I did have the little Cape Canaveral suitcase that you opened up and had the toys. But <laughs> yeah, but you had well, did you have the counts. little did you have the little tool that picks up moon rocks like I did? That's the only uh, okay, the fine. Okay, he always one up me. <laughs> <laughs> what did that even look like? I've never heard. I of don't that know. Huh? <laughs> oh, it's the, you've seen it before. It's it's it's. You know what? I, I'm sure I can have. I can bring it up here. It's right on my bookshelf. No, I'm kidding. His dad gave him the dog pooper scooper and told him to go yeah, outside. Told him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and said it was a moon rocker. Go out and look for moon rocks, kid. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I like that. That's like, uh, I guess, the opposite of like the science kit, you know, that everyone grew up with. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so I, I guess kind of coming off of that, what brought space systems integration about like how did this you know i idea to start a company and take it somewhere kind of uh i guess start and then grow well you know what and we're going to talk about this later sarah but um <laughs> this was something that we really could not have planned in advance i mean chris and i both worked at uh, a company used to be called orbital sciences that's where we met in the late 90s and uh you know we became friendly and we worked on several projects together and then we both left Orbital around the same time. Um, and after a while, there came an opportunity. You know, we, we did different things. In fact, I think we both went out of aerospace briefly for just a year or two and did different things. And there came a time where we had a chance to, you know, I, I got contacted by a colleague who wanted to bring me in uh, as a contract. Would I mind being a sole proprietor? Another means a company of one. Just, a, you know, instead of working for a large company, work for a company of one and I'd be a subcontractor. And he's like, hey, we need people with various skill set. And, you know, Chris and I had been keeping in touch, even though we were outside, uh, you know, no longer in the industry. I was like, hey, how would you like to come back and do this? And we can do some cool stuff together. And eventually we started working in, in, in parallel, both with our sole proprietorships. And a few years later, we just, um, you know, we came up with the idea of just joining together and starting, a, you know, starting a company. And uh, Space Systems Integration was actually founded by uh, another uh, colleague years ago, and, and he left the company some time ago, and Chris and I remain the principal owners. But this is not something I thought in my 30s, you know, that I would be doing. I thought it, this this happened when I, you know, I was in my 40s, and, and Chris was, uh, was, was a little bit younger, a little less experienced than I am. And, uh, and uh, uh, no, so, it, and it turned out to be something that, you know, we we did, we brought it, we started working as consultants um, and, and started, you know, we just really uh, started growing space systems integration, what we like to call SSI. Uh, and what we do, Sarah, is we help uh, customers buy and we help them build big things, big systems. Uh, could be could be rockets, could be, 
satellites themselves. It could be actually ground systems that are used to command the satellites and, and manage the satellites and, and do that kind of work. Uh, sometimes we look, uh, you know, we have people that are very, and, and we've added and, and grown over the years. We have some people that are really down in the weeds and helping people to work on some very key part of, of a spacecraft, of a satellite. And then we have people that are a little bit more expansive and they look, well, how does this whole architecture do together? You can have these satellites here and these satellites there and this ground system and you want to do this, this, this. And that's more systems engineering. And, and so we have a, a variety of people that do that. And we look to provide our customers who are you know, commercial and government um, with the sort of solutions they need to get some of their systems off the ground. And we, our people have unique skill sets. Uh, some of our people, like I said, are very, very detail oriented. Some of the people are very um, expansive and can see things at the, you know, at the 10,000 foot level. Um, but it, you know, this was uh, just something that Chris and I were friends and we decided to work together and we got along weather together and similar mindsets complement each other really well. Like I said, we, we wouldn't have planned this uh, in advance if we, if we even occurred to us. And I like that you guys work on all sorts of different stuff, um, but you know, from satellites to, to rockets, to ground systems, I, that's, um, you get a very wide, you know, girth of experience and see all sorts of things when you work on different systems. Um, that's, it's something that I, I, would kind of like to do throughout my career is just see a little bit of everything because it's all just so cool. Um, <laughs> so people come to you and they say, you know, I, I want to build the spacecraft to do X or I, you know, I'm trying to develop a rocket to do Y. Um, and I don't, you know, I, do they not have like a, a clear set of requirements or they're trying to figure it out. And so they, they come to you to kind of get guidance and feedback uh, on how to complete whatever their objective is? That, that can differ. I mean, for the most part, our, our, our customers come to us and they, they know what they want or who they want. Okay. Um, we have the, the key expertise that they want and they may have worked with an individual in the past. Uh, and they're like, you know, I, I really need, uh, you know, Joe's help here. To, to, to get this thing going and, and keep it going and, and make sure it's successful. Um, and other, one, people, other customers are, hey, you know, we're trying to build this system. <sighs> Who do you have and what, what can we do to, what can you provide us to help us to, to, to make the whole mission successful? Um, but, uh, you know, they don't come with, uh, to us uh, necessarily and say, uh, you know, I want somebody to build me a better mousetrap. They know what mousetrap they have. They know what mousetrap they have funds for. Uh, they're just having a little bit of trouble getting it together. We, we, do, we do, do provide services that start from the, you know, the design, the blank piece of paper. We'll start with the design. And we provide services sometimes all the way through the project, sometimes somewhere in the middle. But we can go from that design, from that blank piece of paper, all the way to the operations and the operations center when it's working. I mean, we, we, that we have the the plethora of talent in the company and, and experience with each individual to do that. Is there, I guess, one system that you like working on in particular, like whether it be rockets or, or spacecraft, <laughs> is there one you find more exciting? Uh, for me, I, I really like the small experimental spacecraft. Um, they're, 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 they're kind of a quicker turnaround than, than the, than the larger spacecraft. Uh, so you're going from that blank piece of paper to the, you know, building of the hardware, to the integration and test, to the verification, to the sell-off, to the launch, you get to launch it still. 
Uh, and then then the, those early operations that are that are pretty exciting. So yeah, I mean, I prefer the smaller uh, projects personally, but we do work the gamut of of different different programs. Tobin, do you have a favorite? Favorite spacecraft we built was something we built. Uh, we had a cust we had a contractor build in about eighteen months, from basically from start to finish, and we launched it uh, with a company called um, uh, Rocket Labs. And Rocket Lab at that time was launching satellites in uh, New Zealand. Uh, so this was uh, kind of it was like eighteen minutes of stomach, uh, eighteen months of stomach twisting panic. Uh, followed by a site visit to the North Island in, in New Zealand, uh, followed by a launch in New Zealand, um, where we were at the point towards the end. And, and there were just so many different constraints that I had never worked on in my life. There was one flight leaving Los Angeles for New Zealand that took freight uh, like once a week. It was like every, I think it was every Friday evening, you would fly out there. So we really had to make it. Otherwise, there was a lot of trouble and there was a lot of financial and um, and, uh, you know, and really it, it was one of those uh, projects, Sarah, where like towards the end during integration testing, you know, but when you're putting the satellite together, it was like every minute counted. You know, what could we do to make this take, you know, 18 hours instead of 36 hours? And like I said, we'd be, you know, getting calls all night or spending weeks out at the facility in, in California. Um, getting, uh, flying to New Zealand a couple hours, uh, a couple days ahead of the satellite, getting to you know, watch it getting loaded off the freight and then escorting it down to the to the other end of, of you know, we drove down from Auckland to the, the site in the lower end of the southern end of the um, uh, the North Island and then uh, getting back to to uh, to the United States, um, watch it launch from New Zealand and then uh, getting back and working operations to make sure the satellite uh, you know came off, came off the rocket and you know there's a lot of you know, you need a strong stomach at this part of the mission. And, um, but no, there was just so many things that had to come together. There's so many firsts involved with this mission. We work with some great people, some outstanding engineers and, and rocket lab was fantastic. Um, and no, it was just, uh, it wasn't the most sophisticated satellite that I've ever worked on, but it was definitely one of the most, uh, one of the most fun and, uh, one of the quickest. I, I know what you mean about like the whole stomach Charting thing too. When it, whenever you're down to a, a deadline, we we kind of experience this a lot. Well, not a lot, but at least a few times when um, the CubeSat that I worked on was in the operations phase. It's like you have a very short window to do anything, and um, there's it's it's so weird to like deal with that kind of pressure and respond uh, accordingly and and think quick and um, and get it done. So um, I feel you there. Kind of going off of this a little bit, one of the things that I noticed on your website was, um, or in terms of services, was uh, doing an, an acquisition strategy. Uh, so like taking the, the paper concept idea and then making sure that you have um, the right stakeholders, um, feasible funding, uh, that there's it, that what you're doing is is a, actually going to be profitable for, for companies. Um, and in, in terms of like the exploration side, I guess that's kind of only, that's all that I've seen in terms of an acquisition strategy, but I've never really experienced this from like the commercial side of things where you have to, um, you know, really evaluate if something's marketable and it's going to, and as well as, as feasible. Um, so I'm curious to pick your brain about 
the acquisition side, strategy side of things and lessons learned challenges there. Um, so I guess to, to start off, in, in terms of what you guys define as an acquisition strategy, what sorts of analyses and, um, and trades go into that? If I made that question make sense. <laughs> That's a great question, Sarah. When I first started my career, I was at, uh, at NASA, and this was um, right around the time of the Challenger accident in the mid 80s. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of the government did things very methodically, very, you know, very risk averse at that time. They're not tolerating a lot of failure. Uh, so there were like a lot of, you know, you would, you know, at our side, most of what we do at SSI is, is government, you know, contracts. We are branching on a little bit of commercial work and, and that's, that's a different story. And, and I think that's something that Chris can talk to a little bit um, because that's, that's where he, has, you know, he, he spent, we both spent time, but Chris has spent a little bit more time there. But for a lot of times we at SSI will get thrown uh, either we work on a proposal and, you know, that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, talk about stomach turning. You get, uh, you know, you get, you get a, a request for a proposal and you know who the other competitors are in your space and you want to make sure that you just beat the tar out of them and you, know, you want to win this because people's jobs depend on it and it looks fun. So, you, you know, when it comes in the proposal phase, you spend a lot of time thinking, how do we do this? How do we do this cheaply? And how do we do this in a way that it's going to work? And how do we get our best people on board? And, and, and how do we write it so that we convey? There's usually some kind of page limit. You can't just send like, a, you know, an Encyclopedia Britannica volume of proposal response. Yeah. You have to get it terse and they give you a page limit. And so we try it. It's like I said, every, you know, I said, just not sure to go every minute counts. It's like almost every word counts. And we've got to reach out and tell our story. This is what we think we can do. You know, if you trust us with your, with your money. And um, so that is, that's interesting. And then we're on the other side of that, where we're actually, you know, working step side by side with the government. And we're like, Hey, look, this, you know, company a won this contract. And we want to make sure that this is this looks good. This is what they're saying to do. We either want you to look at the proposals and evaluate them and then go what's called a source selection board, which you sit in a room with a bunch of people and you start complaining about each proposal. And then you have a favorite proposal. And does this look good? I might. This proposal looks better than that proposal. Um, but And then, you know, so then you, you find that the government makes this, you know, the, the final decision. And, and then there's a stage where, OK, you get something that's post proposals, post award. And then the government's like, this is what we got. You know, take a look at our acquisition strategy is how do we get this to work for the amount of money that the company, the, the vendor said that they would propose it for? Well, we take a look and deep dive and they say, what do they say they're going to do? And what do we think with our experience do we think it's going to cost? Are they cutting corners here or can we cut corners over there? We, um, uh, you know, we do use a lot of tools out there to help us do this, uh, like the earned value metric system. It's, uh, it's a very... Um, Comp people hate it, people love it, but it's a good way of trying to um, use, allow contractors to track the progress and allow you know, customers to track the progress of their contractors. Uh, like you said, you know, you, you know, and I, I particularly think that's, that's a, a good way to do it. Um, when you talk about the other tools that we can, we, we look a lot at requirements. So in other words, what do they say they're going, what do we tell them that they need to do? You need to make sure it does this and that and this and that and this. And then what are the ways that they say that they can do that? How do they meet? Are they going to just say, it's, we're going to do this by analysis. We're going to show you some simulation. We're going to show you some numbers. Or are you going to do it by test? 
And then what does that test look like? Or you say, you know what, it's inspection. Like, you know, you, you should have three widgets on this particular board. Okay, one, two, three, done, next requirement. So, and there's a lot of ways to track those requirements and make sure how, that, you know, that you, you might have hundreds of requirements on a large system. On a small system like Chris was talking about, you might have, you know, not, not as many, but either way, you use it as a metric to understand the progress of, of, of how that contractor is doing. So you set up tools to, you know, to track their progress, how much money they're spending and, and what can they take credit for? And then how, how well are they saying what they're going to do? Like, how can we track the requirements um, and, 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 and really get an idea that, boy, these, these individuals, these men and women are going to deliver on what they would say they're going to do. Um, you know, if you want to talk about challenges and, and lessons learned, uh, you know, it's that pit you get in the stomach when you hear that the customer has the first overrun. Um, you know, they said, they said, remember, we said, we're going to do this for X million Well, it's really Y and that, in this case, Y is greater than X sometimes much. So, mm -hmm. um, so then you try to take some hard rules. Um, and, and one of the customers I work with, they have an expression, and this is actually throughout the industry. Don't, don't fall in love with your project because you might have to kill it. Um, and you do things that we're saying, well, you know, we only have X number of dollars to spend on this. And I know company a that you want more than we have so we have to figure a way or out to put you know five pounds of stuff and you know in a two pound bag um and that's usually where it takes a little bit of work you know if somebody doesn't write you a check for that for that difference between x and y you've got to find a way to make you know downscale y to make it you know x um mm -hmm. so that takes a little bit of skill set too and that's like okay so we're not going to get everything we want what are the things that we really want and can we get this in, into a cost bucket too? So that's that's some of the challenges we're, we're facing is what happens when you have to downsize the program or where you have to, this is where it gets really weird. And, and you see people doing this more and more nowadays as, as I think the industry, we can talk about this later, industry is more accommodating of taking risks. They say, well, we do a lot of things to make sure that things are gonna work. We go through testing and we do various um, uh, you know, things to, to, to make sure the satellite knit comes together pretty well. Well, what if we just cut a few corners that we don't take a maintain instead of, you know, five different cycles of testing, we do three different cycles of testing instead of 120 hours of testing. Can we get away with 80 instead of 12 people working it? What about we let four of those people go do something else and get off the charge number? So it's, um, it's, you know, come on, you know, just like they say that, you know, no battle plan survives the first contact with the enemy. It's almost like no plan acquisition plan, you know, survives, you know, the first, um, first uh, you know, preliminary design review. Um, so, you know, part of the, so part of the challenge is, is just articulating how much you have to spend, how is somebody going to get to do it? And if things don't work out, how do you downsize things or reset expectations to, um, to get the, get some kind of product uh, out the door and up in the air. So I think the only thing that I would, would add to that is that, you know, I think that one of the, one of the keys to, it, uh, to, to really aerospace engineering and maybe, maybe every engineering um, is that the one thing the engineer wants to do is make it perfect. And there's an old saying that, you know, at some point in time, you have to shoot the engineers and finish the job. Um, and, I think that what, what a key to being a good engineering lead is, a good system engineer is cost and schedule are part of quality. If you, if you deliver the perfect system well over cost and not on time, that's not a very high quality product. Mm -hmm. 
So you have you have to make those decisions on cost and schedule and functionality of the product. And those decisions need to be made, you know, as the project progresses, as things unfold and problems occur and problems you have to solve or maybe don't have to solve. Uh, and then lastly on the tools, I think that something that I, I've been getting more into myself on the current project that I'm working is is model-based system engineering. I know it's it's the the younger crowd has a lot into it. Um, us more experienced guys uh, really uh, kind of question the the usefulness of it. I shouldn't say usefulness, but the 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 uh, the effectiveness of it is probably a better way to put it. Uh, and the more that I've learned it, the more that some of the uh, less experienced engineers than I, which is just translated as younger, maybe, I, I don't think they're that young, or maybe I'm just that old. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they explained to me that the different features that it can do. And, and I think it really can help in your decision-making, in your uh, analysis of cost, analysis of schedule. Um, you know, earn value is a very good tool, Tobin mentioned, uh, but this really can feed into that as well. And you can really put real live metrics on real life functionality that you may or may not want to put into your system. Gotcha. That, no, that's that's a good that you mentioned. I unfortunately, like I I don't have any personal experience with model based systems engineering, but I know like a little bit about it. And um, yeah, I think it's it's definitely one of those things where you know any metric that you can put to something just helps you make like a, or it, at least that's how it seems. It helps you make like a a more um, affirmative decision on, on what the best path is. Um, so it's, 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 I think it's, it's a cool concept. It's something that I'd like to learn a little bit more about, but um, yeah, right now I just kind of know generally what it is. <laughs> um, so I, I guess to, to go off this a little bit in, in terms of, cost cutting and trying to figure out how to, you know, if, if, if the, the cost is going to be much greater than what we originally said it, it would be, um, do you guys have any, are there any other general lessons apart from, um, like lessons learned apart from just like, you know, is it mostly testing where it's, it's easy to kind of pull you know, downsize things, or is it just too independent of each project? Um, I guess maybe that's a just a really big question in general, because um, I know it's like, oh, you know, we can try to cut corners with hardware, or we could try to cut corners with testing and manpower. Um, so how how do you weigh what the best option is? So a lot of times I, I think that we find it to be just a matter of engineering judgment. I, I don't know that anybody really wants to, uh, you know, so a lot of times, let me, let me back up a second. Uh, one thing that we love to do in space is have redundant systems. You know, think about uh, Apollo 11, think about the Apollo, think about, um, uh, you know, the uh, Dragon and, and the other satellites, that, the other rockets that SpaceX putting up, putting, think about the shuttle. A lot of them, especially when they're human, flight involved, there's just a lot of redundant systems. If something fails, this takes over. Then if that fails, it fails, this takes over. You have to have several failures in a row before you want to, um, you know, you know, before before something catastrophic happens. Uh, and even on unmanned satellites, which is most of the work where SSI does, you know, we have a little bit, we do a little bit of human spaceflight work. 
Um, but even in unmanned systems, depending on how how important what it is you're trying to do, you might have redundancy. You might say, okay, well, if this unit fails, well, I've got four, and now I can downsize to three. Three, I can still do the mission. If I lose another one, eh, you know, that's the way it goes. Or you might have two radios. If one burns out, well, then you have another way of uh, of contacting the ground station. So, you know, that's one way to do it. Like, you know, we, we all love our satellites to last forever, but if you had an infinitely, you know, if you had a satellite that had no, uh, you know, no reasonable chance of failing, you wouldn't be able to afford it. Nobody would be able to afford it because it's it's like the car that never breaks down. Um, but, you know, so we try to say, well, how much redundancy do we need? And if we wanted to shed hardware, do we shed some piece of it? Do we want it to be what we call single string? Or do you want it to be duly redundant or, or redundant or, or something? So in other words, I, I've seen where we have taken a whole uh, element of redundancy off, like, you know, early in the phase enough where you can do that without a lot of ramifications downstream. Um, so a lot of it's engineering judgment. What are the things that you're trying to do? If you're trying to get up something sooner, if you try to get something up in a certain amount of time, if you literally are running out of money, uh, there, there are other things that you could do. Um, like I said, we would probably not scrimp on hardware and get hardware that's maybe not as resilient or, or reliable, but you would maybe, like I said, uh, back off on the amount of testing you do and just take a And a lot of the testing we do in aerospace is very, we're very risk averse culture by and large. Uh, the, um, you know, it's, uh, so it's, it's very, uh, you know, that, that could be a very difficult decision to, to arrive at is, you know, how do I back out with the, you know, What's my least amount of impact on my reliability with the biggest cost savings or biggest schedule savings? So a lot of that is just how we're feeling at the different phase of the program. Uh, you know, what constraints are we in? And, and then there's a fair amount of engineering judgment that comes into play. Yeah, I mean, along those lines, you know, and something I often say to, to people is you, you just can't skip experience. I mean, that, that engineering judgment comes from experience. Um, so, and I think that's one thing about SSI that makes it such a, a, a unique kind of company is that, you know, our our expertise and the people we hire, uh, they can tell you what you need to do, but they can also tell you what you don't need to do, and that's that's a that's a very important distinction when you're when you're facing all these these different uh, cost overruns and and failures that you didn't expect and all this stuff to try and bring a project back into into scope both from the, the the engineering side and from the from the business side of it because uh, they both have to survive they both have to work in that respect yeah no, I, I think that's a great point especially with um, some of the the projects that I've worked on it's really the you know not like the knowledge that people have gained from working on similar system multiple times and they can say you know for we know for sure this is going to take us three days or it's, it's so much easier for them to actually see the flow of everything and, and where we can kind of, you know, stick certain tests or um, rework or anything like in the middle. So that way we can try to make up for lost time. Um, and, and so it, it's, I don't know, the, the INT process is it's, well, the NT process, and I guess this goes along with any other processes in development. It's it's always interesting to observe those um, those sorts of discussions because you it's it's one one thing that I've certainly learned a lot from. Yeah, I mean, INT is where everybody always says they're going to make up time and cost in INT, and that's oh, not where it happens. I say that. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, quite a bit. 
Um, and if you talk to the engineer, especially the guidance, navigation, and control engineers, no offense, Tobin, their tests, their original test plan is, is generally very sophisticated, very thorough, and they test every aspect of it. And, it, and I am not saying it's not an, a very good ideal test. But that is often where you need to really dig in and find out exactly what needs to be done because those tests are really cool and they're really tempting to do because they're so cool, but they're often overkill for what many satellites need. Yeah. Tobin, don't you agree? <laughs> hey, all, the, all those all those tests were super important, Chris. No, but but what's interesting now, Sarah, is there's a paradigm changing, and it's something that Chris and I have been watching for years. In that, we see that satellites are getting smaller; they're getting more effective. Your CubeSat is probably a lot more powerful than the Apollo 11 lunar module or your command module that went up 50 years ago. So you can put something up in space for you know. We worked with a CubeSat um, and one of my customers that that was uh, $2 million and it takes images of stars and it talks to ground stations and it does, it's got a, a, a deformable mirror so it can do some adaptive optics. And it was built by, um, you know, it was, it was procured by, you know, the spacecraft itself was procured, but it was integrated uh, from a, from a commercial bus vendor, but it was integrated by a bunch of students at uh, graduate students at, at a leading technical university. So, these were people with not a lot of experience, but they had enough skills to put together a, a system that was effective. Now, is it going to last forever? No. You know, it's it, it's a two or three year spacecraft, but nowadays that's okay. Mm -hmm. And you can do things. And with launch coming down in price, it's it's not nearly as, it's not nearly super cheap, uh, but it's a lot less expensive than it was. But given the the number of you know the the number of uh, launch companies that are coming out, it's easier for people to do things in space that don't have to last very long. Um, you see a lot of these mega constellations; those satellites are going to last forever. They're going to be up there, and they'll you know there's some of them fail. Uh, they they just deorbit them. They put new ones up, and it's cheap enough to do that nowadays. And it's it's probably cheaper than designing a bulletproof spacecraft, which is a lot of the uh, engineers and Chris's and my generation are used to doing. So it, it does kind of give us a little bit of a different look at things where, you know, maybe we can take a chance. If we've got, if we're launching five satellites, is everybody really expecting all five to survive? Well, you know, if you're spending $100 million, well, heck yeah, you know, you really want all five to survive. If you're doing those all for, for you know, for $15 million, well, then I think you take some different, you know, your risk posture, your risk posture is entirely different. Yeah, I think the, the Space 2.0 companies have really, in, injected a lot of energy into space and has really oh, sure. gotten us space 1.0 guys to really kind of take a look and say, okay, what, what's really, what's really necessary? What's a better model these days now that prices are changing and technology is changing and, you know. Well, Chris, the, we're more the, like the trade is 1.5. Okay, fine. Well, <laughs> 1.5. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the 0.5 counts for something. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Very key. Yeah. Or especially like with height too, like I'm, I'm five, one and a half and I count the half, the half. Is <laughs> I would love to round up, but I won't. Yeah. I can't, I can't, I can't really pull that off. Cause then people are like, well, I'm five, two and you're smaller than I am. So the half counts. <laughs> oh, that's why you got to learn metric. And then yeah. You'd be, uh... <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so you, you guys were mentioned, it seems like for, for developing, um, you know, whether it be a spacecraft or a, a rocket or ground system, uh, you have to reach out to all of these different vendors and communities to kind of help put it together. So what is it, how, I guess, what is your, how do you find people? <laughs> um, how do you find the right people that are, are going to be cost effective, but are, you know, also, yeah, cost effective, but are also going to be knowledgeable and experienced enough and get it done. You're talking um, about how we hire people? Or guess, how do we find our customers? I guess I'm just thinking of the, the cube set that you mentioned, Tobin, uh, how it, you know, parts came from different vendors, but then the spacecraft oh. was in, integrated by the, um, by graduate students. So is, I guess, was that planned that way? Uh, to Yeah. You know, Sarah, a lot of times the work that we do, uh, we are coming in on the government side and we're helping them buy that. We're, we're helping them acquire that system. It's a system really that you're, you know, you don't really care about the spacecraft itself. Although Chris and I kind of like spacecraft in general, but it's really <laughs> what the spacecraft is doing. What's the payload? Everything's on, it's a radio, it's a telescope. It's something that does something that's important to somebody. Um, and a lot of times we will come on, you know, if, you know, if, we're, if for example, if we're helping out somebody develop a satellite, we come in and, and maybe we, you know, we'll form a team and we say, we want this engineer, we want this engineer. We know this person's got this kind of experience and this person doesn't, you know, doesn't take any crap and this person is good with the customer. And, you know, so it's a lot of different, not only do we need engineering skill sets, but we need, you know, when you're assembling a team that actually builds something, you want to find out how well those people mesh together. You can have the most brilliant engineer, um, but if they can't work with anybody, they're really not helpful. You know, you push them off to the side and bring them in for reviews now and then feed them cookies okay. and send them home. <laughs> but what you can do with now, a lot of times though, we are, when I was talking about that CubeSat, this was a satellite that was proposed to my customer. And they said, we will do this and it's going to be really cheap and we're going to use these people. So nowadays, uh, you know, because of Space 2.0 or, you know, we're, like I said, we're Space 1.5 in our company in SSI, we look at, you know, we're buying a spacecraft. We're not providing the inset, uh, insight that we did maybe 10, 20 years ago because the satellites are so small. If you spent all the time, you know, and having these people address every concern that you have, it would double the cost. And, and that's just not, it's just not, um, it, you know, it's, it's not very useful to do that with some of these missions. So we don't really find the kind of people when we're, when we're helping people acquire satellites, you get what you get, you don't get upset. Mm -hmm. So there's a group of graduate students, well, heck, you go meet the graduate students, you have a good relationship with them. Are there any questions? You know, you should be doing this and don't be doing that. And, and you know, so you want to, um, you try to understand the personal dynamics between the team. You try to have a good personal a working relationship with that team. So they trust you, There's a lot of trust. They, you know, there are a lot of individuals in our business, they make a career out of just throwing darts and not providing solutions. And a lot of times, you know, what we tell our people in SSI is that you're, you know, you're there not to find problems, you're, you're finding solutions. So it, it, it's, you have to bring a solution to your customer and you have to, you know, and that, 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 that comes with a lot of trust that, you know, if you have a vendor and say, hey, we're overrunning on this, you work with them and say, okay, well, I could just tell my customer that there's a problem or I could say, hey, here's a problem. Here's what these guys think we should do. And here's what these folks think we're doing. And I think this is, this is the right, you know, I think a combination of that is the right approach. So it's, you know, we, we love the fact, Chris and I love technology. Everybody in our company, SSI loves technology, but it's really the, you know, a lot of the personal relationships that we develop 
that enable our, our customers and our mission successes. I also think that that's one of the unique things about SSI. We are a small company, but we have a very wide uh, breadth of, uh, of experience. So if I have a problem and I have an issue on, on my job and, and I, I, I'm trying to solve it, there's always somebody in, in SSI I can call and say, hey, you know, this, this seems like I could do something like this. And uh, we're kind of getting a little bit of resistance of it. What do you think? I mean, I just did that with Tobin today. I was like, hey, you know, this is the problem. What do you think? And, and I can always get Tobin to, to break out MATLAB and start finding the, fixing the problem for me, uh, you know. And you know, and you know, right I've done it already, don't you? Right there, yes, yes, sure. <laughs> I worked out the equations this morning, Chris. Uh, I'm sure you did. See, it's a trick I play on him. He doesn't realize uh, that he's working for, for me for free. Yeah. <laughs> but but, for but those kinds number. of those kinds of ideas, and and you know, so guys will call us. Guys will, will call other 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 of our uh, our engineers, and we have enough breadth and enough quality at, at each of the positions that. Uh, you know, we're able to find solutions even if we can't find it ourselves. And and we lean on each other a lot that way. Oh, that's great. I, um, and I think, you know, everyone says like, like all the problems that go into aerospace, like they're really challenging, but, um, you know, just more of the, the social interactions and how you build those relationships with people and, and build, um, I guess your, your network. So you have, um, you have resources to go to, to help you answer those kinds of questions. It's like the most important part. And sometimes it's the more difficult part is, is communicating with people. Um, at least that's, that's what I've found. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, we're all engineers. So, uh, you know, a, a good friend of mine once told me that an extroverted engineer looks at your shoes when he's talking to you. Um, <laughs> And, you know, so the interpersonal skills don't, are, are part of the, the, hey, I'm dealing with this, I'm dealing with that. Nobody ever really has a problem with me, but, you know, uh, you know, they, they, come, they come across and they, they're trying to get across an idea uh, and they don't seem to be successful. And, and a lot of it is the interpersonal and the communication uh, skills that, that uh, you know, need to be developed by everybody. You know? Yeah, that's, um, I wish I could think of like, I would love to do like just an episode or something on um, just the communication side of things. Cause I always find it, I don't know, maybe it's cause I was a manager for a little bit, but I always find that to just be a really intriguing um, side of things is just how to, how to communicate with people and like how to ask questions. And it's, it's not, it's something that's so hard to like teach. You just have to learn it by talking to people and doing things and making mistakes and going, okay, I shouldn't have phrased it that way. And, um, and then trying to, you know, remember for next time. Yeah. I probably could be a, a negative example in that, in that conversation. If you choose, like, I have a, a, <laughs> a reputation of being rather blunt and straightforward. Is that fair, Tobin? <laughs> Tobin has a reputation of keeping mute on when he talks. <laughs> <laughs> Your reputation is well earned, Chris. <laughs> there you go. You'll need like a plaque or something for your desk. <laughs> yeah. Some sort of trophy. And I was curious to ask too, if with missions in general, if if like 
scope control. Um, and I guess kind of going back to the, you know, more of like the downsizing cost overrun side of things, if scope control ever becomes um, an issue or something, yeah, something that's difficult to manage, whether it be like early on in the mission or kind of later on as you are trying to figure out how to, you know, make up for lost time or, or make up costs as, as every mission um, has to do somewhere along the line. So there's and there, how you I, deal that, with that. I think that's a really good question. Um, requirements creep can kill you from inside or outside. So your customer can try to require, creep requirements on you and that's going to drive up your cost and schedule. So you have to know when to say no. Um, what you do not do is often as important as what you do for a successful program. So what you say no to is very important, uh, both internally and externally. I mean, the, the, you know, I think that you know, engineers have a reputation of wanting to build the perfect system, but that's not what people are buying. So as, a, as, a, as an engineering leader, you need to understand that they can't build a perfect system. You also need to understand from the, from the customer side that some things that they ask will be very low cost and you don't always want to be constantly saying no, 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 no to your customer. So you got to pick and choose when you're going to say no. Um, and if it's a big requirement creep and they can, they can come with some doozies. Um, mm -hmm. You have to be able to effectively argue that that is not contributing to their objectives. Their objectives of the system is X. You're asking for X, Y, and Z. If you want, really want Y and Z, you're going to cost yourself what your true objective is, which is X, and you're not going to be successful. And that, that's just, that's the art of system engineering right there is, is, is preventing the extra work that is not value added to the overall objective. Better is the enemy of good enough. I have heard that. Yes. I, I, I love that, that saying. One, one of the, one of the engineers I used to work with asked me if I had a plaque over my door exiting my house that I had to touch that said better is the enemy of good enough every time I left. He said it as a joke. Uh, mm -hmm. I took it as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, sorry. It, it looked like Tobin was going to say something. No, nope, I, uh, I agree with everything Chris said. I've, I've, you know, heard him say that a million times and I just felt <laughs> like, well, there he goes again. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> um, no, that, and that's, I, I appreciate all of that too. Cause that was something that, um, we struggled a lot with in developing our CubeSat. Um, it's cause we, we were learning how to, make a spacecraft in the first place. And so when we started, like we had all of the stuff, you know, requirements weren't like strictly defined, but we were trying to do way more than we should have been trying to do. Um, and so that was a lesson that we had to learn the hard way. And it's, um, you know, I think for, for new engineers, it's, it's something that you have to learn with experience. Um, and so I, I, like all of that advice is stuff that, that I, I wish that I had learned like way earlier on. And I, I think it would have made everything so much easier. My last question that I ask everyone is a, a favorite story. 
uh, you know, it, it can be like an absolute favorite story or a story that was, you know, just meaningful to you um, from, I guess it could be from anything. Uh, it doesn't have to just be from, from your work at Space Systems Integration, um, but it can, can be from anything. Um, though I am very curious to just keep asking you guys for lessons learned because this has been such a fun conversation. <laughs> Since Tobin's muted again, should I go first? No, okay. This, this is so one lesson, <laughs> one lesson is to make sure your mute button isn't on all yeah, the time. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's top key lesson. Key lesson. First lesson. Learned, no, learned um, by all of us during the pandemic. There are almost, so almost. many <laughs> lessons, Sarah, that you that you could learn. Um, so one of the things is Chris and I were working on one of the first things we worked together on was this proposal, and we were so fired up. Uh, we were going to send. This is in the late '90s. We were going to send a small set to Mars. And it was a NASA mission, and we just like worked on it night and day. I think for we crushed months, it. we crushed it months on end, months <laughs> on end, and and we just thought, you know, we were like this isolated, you know, a lot of teams that do really well, they, they kind of isolate themselves, and they they have an enemy, and we were going up against. We were pretty sure we had two competitors, and we just kind of pictured what they were doing, like right there, and what was their design looking like, and we hated their guts, and we wanted to just. <laughs> you know, just beat the crap out of them. And we, um, you know, so we just obsessed over every single little bit of information and how do we convey this, this proposal, because it meant so much. And I, we were starting to recruit people and say, okay, when we get this, you know, it's going to be great. And we think you should come work. And we got half the company all excited. They're all ready to go. Da, 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 da. Could, couldn't and imagine we, them doing, going to anywhere else. It had to come to us. We were that much better than everybody. Well, it turns out we lost yeah. <laughs> and uh, we were just crushed. We were crushed. We're, we were, we're over it now, kind of. Kind of. <laughs> this was uh, over 20 years ago, but we were old enough to think that we were invincible and, and bulletproof um, and uh, we weren't going to Mars. And we just had to tell these people that we've been recruiting and no, you're not going to get to be doing this and you're not going to do that. We're not going to have a special patch. And we're just, we were devastated. And it, you know what, and it, it kind of like took us, you know, we kind of licked our wounds for a little bit and, and then we kind of went on and, and did something else. And by the way, the best part though is the program got canceled. No, nobody ever went to Mars with this thing. So that made us feel a little, a little bit better. Yeah. Um, but if they had, we would. Misery loves choice. company. Exactly. Yeah. Well, um, they made the but, wrong choice. Yeah. Well, it wouldn't have ever got canceled had Thank they you. picked us. I the guarantee. That's exactly. absolutely. Exactly. Um, but the lesson I think I learned from that was to put everything you got into something that you're doing. Um, but it's not the end all be all, you know, it's not your reason for existence. Your career doesn't rise and fall on it. And, you know, Chris and I both had very good careers, very excellent careers since this time. And, and I'm not proud of, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sorry for the, for the effort that we put in the, the, the slogans and the quote boards on the wall, the quotes on the whiteboard and the, the, you know, the mottos and the, and the, um, uh, you know, and all the things that we did that really built up team camaraderie. And we, you know, we really uh, did a lot of good things with this team. But, um, you know, we, it's not the end to lose. You know, sometimes, you know, just the effort is the win. You know, and sometimes, you know, you're not going to get to the goal that you want, but there's a lot in that journey that helps you become better engineers, that help you become smarter and, and, and a little more agile, a little more adept. Um, so it's, you know, it's you, you take, uh, you know, 
that you take the, the preparing for the launch is great. Launch is awesome if you get that far. But sometimes the best part of this is, is just getting to launch and working with people that you learn to love. Some you learn to hate, um, but you, you know, and, and getting together. And I think that connection that everybody has, the connection, I was just telling a friend the other day that the thing that really energizes me is the technical connection, the, uh, the things that we do together to solve problems. And, and, and that's what really is, is the win is great. The launch is awesome. Mm-hmm. But the thing that I think that keeps people like Chris and I and all the people in SSI getting out of bed every morning is just uh, is doing it with people that you respect, people that you care about. And uh, and that's part of the journey. Yeah, that kind of leads right into what my, my lesson learned would be hire the right people, hire the right people, hire the right people. The people at SSI is what makes, makes what SSI really is. It's the difference. And that goes, we have the engineers, we have, you know, we, we've just made a couple of non-engineer hires. Um, not just, but we hired a business manager a few years ago, which was one of our best hires just because it got, got us more focused on engineering. Now we just hired uh, a recruiter. So that, that, and she's organized us that we've been in an area that was really needed uh, and uh, been super helpful so far. So, you know, these are people that, you know, really help the business go. And no matter what position you're hiring for, make sure you're hiring the right people. And I think we've done a really, really good job at SSI doing that. Uh, you know, as far as stories go, you know, Tobin and I often talk about uh, the stupid tax, you know, you're, you're not, when you're, when you're running a company, when you're running different things, you're going to, and you haven't done something before, you're going to pay what we call the stupid tax. I'd say, and you know, you got to learn to live with it. You just embrace it almost that you're going to make the stupid tax, learn from it, move on. Uh, and we have a lot of stories, a lot of funny stories that make us look very foolish about that stupid tax. Um, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with this is that, that uh, a few months ago, I had never, I've always been on the satellite side, never been on the, in the launch facility before. And I go down there with a, with a, one of our, our, uh, our new engineers, a young girl, uh, fantastic engineer. Uh, anyway, she, she, we're going through the, the vertical integration facility. Uh, and uh, this is a big tall building where they stack up the rocket. And we're going through that and I am terrified of heights. And at the end of this tour, you go out on this little platform that has this all the way up at the top, right? That people can take pictures of. And Mm -hmm. and I'm terrified of heights and I'm walking out there on this platform and it's got this grate that you can see all the way to the ground. So it makes you feel really, really secure. And uh, this young engineer that was with us is is out there at the very edge of the thing. And she, she yells at me back because I was kind of at the base, you know, just outside the door, you know, I was being really brave. And she, she says to me, Oh, come, let's get a company picture. Okay. So we have a company picture of me holding on as much as I can to the grid. (laughs) She's like, okay, is that good? Let me check it out. Is that a good picture? Oh no, we need another one. And I'm like, (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Just the picture's just getting worse and worse for me. Uh But man, she looked really good. But I, (laughs) you can tell in the picture, I'm just nervous as a long tailed cat on a roof, rocking chairs. And, uh, you know, that that's, that's about as foolish as I want to look telling you a memorable story. Funny, funny how I haven't seen that picture, Chris. I, I, I'm surprised that it's not on LinkedIn somewhere. I'll find it. It's floating around in like an office email. Yeah. Very cool. Um, no, I and I appreciate what you guys said about hiring the right people. It's it's funny. I think I saw a quote this morning that was from um, one person who I really admire is Simon Sinek, 
uh, and he, he talks a lot about leadership and the, this quote said, hire, I think it said hire the right attitude or, or hire for attitude. Like you can always teach skills. Like don't, you don't want to hire for a specific skill set. You want to hire the right kind of attitude and, and people who are going to believe in, in what you believe. Um, and so I, I wholeheartedly agree that it is the people uh, that, that make, that, that essentially make the project. Like any of the missions that I've worked on would never have come together without the, the people who are working on them. They, you know, it's people who are willing to be in there every day and, and do the hard stuff and figure it out and, um, you know, grind through a test that actually makes something deliverable. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah. There's a lot of those people in aerospace inside and outside of SSI. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, um, I, I can't think of a better way to end the podcast. So I, I just want to thank you guys so much again for, for coming on here and, and chatting a little bit with me. This was such a great conversation and, uh, yeah, I could certainly talk to you guys for, for hours, but um, I know it's late there. So, <laughs> Well, thanks for having us. Thank you very much, Sarah. Really enjoyed this. And that's all for this week's episode of The Art of Space Engineering. Thank you all so much again for your support of this podcast. This is really my way of trying to give something back to the aerospace community, as well as inspire and inform others. So I hope you find this content enjoyable and informative. I try to make new episodes as often as I can and make this content as useful to people of all ages and disciplines. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes, please feel free to connect with me via email or LinkedIn, and you can find both of those resources in the podcast description. If you've been enjoying this podcast and you want to support it, please share these episodes with your friends who may be interested in them. And don't forget to follow this on your favorite podcast source or on Facebook to get notifications on upcoming episodes. Here's looking forward to future adventures and the lessons learned from them. Cheers, Sarah.